Stella Duffy is a writer of numerous books, novels, a performer, a theatre maker. She's the co-director of, of the Fun Palaces campaign for cultural democracy, promoting culture at the heart of community and community at the heart of culture. Great pleasure to welcome Stella. Thank you. The house lights are up because I want to see you. Um, I had to go and get that from the bar upstairs, cafe, because I haven't written anything. Good squeak. And I haven't rehearsed anything. And I'm doing about half an hour, but I know we're a little bit late, so I'll try and do a little bit less. Um, don't worry, I have had cancer twice, but I'm not going to get my scars out. It's this weird thing that happens to women who've had breast cancer. We're told it's empowering to get our scars out. I don't see men who've had testicular and prostate cancer told it's empowering to get their bollocks out. I see them told it's empowering to run marathons, to row. So, you know, I'm all for women owning our bodies. But maybe it would be okay for us to wear clothes too. I genuinely am improvising. <laughs> but I'm a fucking mermaid. <laughs> and one of, the, one of the weird things for me about my experience, I've had cancer twice. Um, the first time... Let me start like this. That wasn't starting, that was just taking my shoes off. Is anybody here from Aotearoa, New Zealand? Kia ora! <laughs> Who's the yes? Wave at me. Oh, hi, kia ora. Where are you from? Oh, that's nice. I'm from Tokoroa. Most of them are from Auckland. <laughs> a quarter of the population lives in Auckland. Um, I grew up, I was born in a, in a council estate in Woolwich in southeast London, and I'm the youngest of seven kids. And, um, oh, breast cancer, thinking of the young doctors. Not in my family, people, 70% of us. There you go, you've learned a thing. Um, I was 36 when I was diagnosed with my first breast cancer, and no one believed it, including all of the medical staff, because it's not in my family. And it showed up as a three-centimetre tumour going, Hi! I wasn't here yesterday, and I am here today. Happens sometimes. Um, Anyway, I grew up in a small town in New Zealand because we moved from southeast London to this small town where my parents were economic migrants um, when I was five years old. And both of my parents worked in the timber mill. So you've driven through Tokoroa, haven't you, Wellington? You didn't stop, though, did you? Oh, did you? My town was 70% Māori and Polynesian, which means I grew up with the great privilege of being Pākehā, Palangi, white in Samoan and Māori, Oh, here's a good thing, the rugby's on. People, it's Samoa, not Samoa. <laughs> you learned a thing. It's Tonga, not Tonga. The G is silent in Polynesian languages. And um, because I had the great good fortune of growing up in a multicultural place before it was trendy and working class where everyone was working class, um, 
I, I took in a lot of Māori culture, and um, these days as well, at an event like this, I would introduce myself with a mihi, a Māori greeting, and my mihi would be this. Kia ora, tēnā koutou katoa, that's hello everybody. Ko Shooters Hill, ko Pohatoroa, nga monga. I was born in Woolwich and I grew up in Tokoroa, so Shooters Hill and Pohatoroa are my mountains, nga monga. Ko River Thames, ko Waikato, nga awa. The River Thames and the Waikato are my rivers. Ko Shaw Savile Southern Cross, nga waka. The waka is the big canoe. And that's the Shaw Savile Southern Cross was how my migrant parents and two of us youngest of the seven kids went to New Zealand when I was five years old. Ko Stella Duffy Takuingawa. In a mihi, before we would say, hi, I'm Stella. I'm a cancer person. Or, hi, I'm Stella, I'm a novelist. Or, hi, hello, my name is. Aren't we grateful for hello, my name is? I'm so, I, given that my two cancers were 14 years apart, I cannot tell you how grateful I am to hello, my name is. It has made a massive difference, medical people. Massive. And when they don't say it, I go, what's your name? Because um, I'm a practiced patient. I am patienting and cancering, not currently as far as I know, bloods last week, mammogram to come. Uh, I don't like the nouns. I really don't like the battle terms. Oh, fuck me. I am not a cancer survivor. Somebody said the other day, maybe you're a veteran. I went, yes. <laughs> Two down. And then my cancer therapist, psycho-oncology department, let's have more psycho-oncology departments, eh? My cancer therapist went, well, you know, because I'm in the fear, I'm in the fear at the moment, because my mammogram's coming up and my bloods have just happened. And he said, because um, um, I'm in the fear, and he said, he said, well, you know, the thing is, I mean, you know, if you did have a third, and I'm like, yes. And then he said, well, and I mean, because, you know, most people don't have three cancers. He said, no, but the ones who do, they go on to have like eight, nine. <laughs> We have a great relationship, my psycho-oncology team, therapist and I. Anyway, I was first diagnosed at 36, and it was shocking because my wife and I were trying to have children, and people say, chemo must have been really hard because you lost your hair, and I'm like, no, chemo is really hard because I lost my dreams of being a mother. And they were much better the, we're much better now at freezing embryos, but we were not great at it then. And even though the cancer department jumped in and the, and the fertility department jumped in and everyone was so kind once they'd understood that we were two women. Um, it, I mean, back then, 18 years ago, it was different. Again, it really was. I can't tell you, particularly looking for the young people in the room. I'm 55 and I've been out for nearly 40 years cannot tell you how, huge, how hugely different it is and how every time I say my wife, I still worry if someone's going to be mean to me. And when we're patienting, that's a really vulnerable place to be. Really vulnerable.
And the hard thing for me about my first cancer wasn't the two surgeries or the six months of chemo. Kept getting neutropenic in the middle. It got delayed and delayed and delayed. Um, oh, and also my chemo nurse was so funny. Um, I, I was a vegetarian back then. And uh, a lovely, lovely chemo nurse, poshest person I've ever met in the world. Digging at my veins and so disappointed every time my red blood cells were shit. And I was explaining how I was eating all the spinach and all the broccoli. And finally she said, Will you just go and have a steak and a glass of red wine? <laughs> and I did. And my red blood cells were way up there the next day. I am an omnivore now. It's true. Um, but but so the, my first experience was basically like this. I was 36. We were trying to have kids. And if you're thinking the other one was a woman, why didn't she have kids? She tried to. She miscarried. She failed. It all went horribly wrong. Anyway, I spent my first cancer like this. Ah! What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I know because I've been freelance my entire life. And because I got my equity card when I was 18, I will work through it. That's a sensible thing to do with a grade three cancer when you're 36 and you've had five embryos retrieved and you've taken all the possible drugs you possibly could ever. And I said, yes, I will do that show that's off Broadway at the end of the year because that'll be a great thing to look forward to. And they said, brilliant. But will you, first of all, do these two months in San Diego? And I said, yes, I will absolutely do that. And I will take my chemo drugs. I'm sure it's fine. I'll take my chemo drugs to America. And my oncologist was like, I don't think so. That's a, not a... Those of us who are artists, we don't get sick pay. I've never had sick pay in my life. And I've had two cancers. And the odd cold as well, but two cancers. Two parents are dead, one sister is dead, and the nephew who I was guardian for is dead. I have never had compassionate leave in my life. I've never had holiday pay, ever. And yes, there are bonuses to being freelance. But the thing that it's very hard to explain to people in traditional professions is that I cannot take time off my work in order to get well. For me, they have to be joined up together. So finally, I took a book with my name on it <laughs> in to show my oncologist. At which point he went, oh, yeah, no, I see. Um, uh, this was a long time ago, though. Uh, they got better. Um, and uh, my chemo nurse said, no, no, but she needs to work. It'll be better for her to work. And it was. It was better. I was still running around screaming. And mostly, I was running around screaming because cancer... Mine. At the time, 36, my dad was dead, my sister was dead. That nephew, the, who I was the guardian for, had died. My mother hadn't yet died. But, and I thought I had loads of friends who died, weirdly. And I thought I knew about death. But I knew about other people's death. And what my second cancer did, because my first cancer, I pretty much refused to look at it, mostly because I was, I mean, it was very, it became the infertility more than the cancer. It became the not being able to get pregnant after chemo more than the cancer, in some ways. But my second one, 14 years after the first one, 14 years after that trade-off of chemo, 
might keep me alive, even though it's going to fuck up my chances of being a mother. I know I'll do it. Maybe the cancer won't come back. The cancer came back. And my oncologist's, my, not my oncologist, my consultant's face, my surgeon's face, when he told me, and he'd been my first surgeon as well, we talked about love all day. I have such love for that man. It was really crap for him to tell me. I was a good story, right? 14 years, clear. I want you to know, those of you who give this news, I'm trying to look at all of you, it's why I wanted the house lights on. We see you. We see that this hurts you too. We're not on one side and you on the other. And when we know this as well as you knowing this, I think we do better medicine together. I love your nodding. Thank you so much. No, seriously, I'm really grateful to it. It really helps because I'm being fucking vulnerable right now. And what that was like, that one, that second one, was here was death. And it became... Here is death. And Satish was saying earlier about loving ourselves. It's quite hard to love a body ourselves when we feel like it's betraying us. It's quite hard. I know I am not the only person in this room who knows this. I'm only telling you my story, not your cancer story. I promise you I'm not trying to do that because I know all of us have different ones. For me, it has been hard to remember to love this body after two such big betrayals. And the second one had five surgeries because I just couldn't get better. But in that time, in the eight-hour first surgery, just dropping this in for any breast cancer people in the room, most of us probably don't have a reconstruction because we want to look good. It's not about your gaze. It's about how we feel in our bodies. And guess what? Doesn't feel the same at all. And my consultant surgeon for that, for the reconstruction, because we had a brilliant conversation about how weird I found it when people kept looking at me and going, would you like us to lift the other one up as well? <laughs> Young baby boy doctors, admittedly, but even so, not, not my consultant. Would you like us to lift? And I'm like, fuck no. <laughs> that one's not cancery. It's not about how we look. It's about what it feels like inside. And after that conversation... Um, my consultant plastic surgeon changed his language. He doesn't talk to the young BRCA1 and 2 women that he gives, he gives the information to in the same way. He talks about how it will feel weird from inside, not about how it looks from the outside. Because he let me have a conversation with him. Anyway, eight-hour-long surgery for the... I had a DEP reconstruction for those of you who are interested in those things, because previous re radiotherapy, skin doesn't want saline implant much. Um, 
and it was an eight-hour surgery, and then I was eight hours in recovery bleeding out because I just couldn't stop bleeding. And, uh, and it was a Friday surgery, which meant that on the Saturday morning, there were some new people, and they hadn't seen me, and they were quite young. And one of them said, oh, my God, we nearly lost you last night. I know. Um, and I was like, well, I was there, but I wasn't there much of the time. And the people I have loved in this were the recovery nurse. And I really was coming in and out of it, you know, totally. And they were going, take it back in. No, God, because we might lose the flap. And, oh. and, uh, and, and the recovery nurse just kept talking to me all night, eight hours, just kept talking to me. I don't remember most of it, but I know she kept talking to me. And then three days later, feeling marginally better, two drains, one catheter, one IV, the woman in the bed there got up and she had like five, she, I don't, you know, she, I, she'd had a bunch of stuff done. I'd only had a bunch of stuff, she'd had a bunch of stuff. And she came over and she was a Muslim woman, a Somalian woman, and I'd seen her husband coming in and I'd seen her praying and she'd seen my wife coming in. She hadn't seen all of my Buddhist friends chanting for me. They were at home. She came over and it was 3.30 in the morning and that hospitally, I'm in pain, so I'm awake kind of way. Um, but hey, St. Thomas's people in pain, but what a view. Come on. Um, and, uh, and, and she came over and she said, can I ask you something personal? Now, when you're a lesbian and somebody says, can I ask you something personal? Seriously, I can't tell you the amount of times I've been asked it. Um, they either mean, tell me about sex, or I, they want to tell me that they're gay. So I said, yes, but you've got more drips and drains than me, so you go back to bed and I'll come to you. So I went to her. It's really weird, because I mentioned catheter, I feel like I have to walk like this. Um, <laughs> and she and I sat down, and she told me that she'd been cut when she was a girl. She didn't say FGM, she didn't say mutilated, so I want to use her word, because that's her choice to speak of herself. She said she'd been cut, and the surgery she'd had hadn't been for that, it had been for a cancer, and they'd been trying to heal some things, but she was in a pretty bad way. And she said, I've seen your friend come in, and I, I said, yes, my wife, and she said, yes. And my husband and I were wondering if you would tell me some of the things that you two do, because he wonders if you do some things that would be good for me that he doesn't know about. So for the next three quarters of an hour, <laughs> I told her every sex I'd ever had, sex with the blokes before I knew how gay I was, sex with the women that I knew before I settled down with my wife, sex that I'd read other people had had. I thought of everything you could possibly do without a clitoris and maybe with not much of a vagina left. And I told her everything. And the next day we were both in really bad pain and she was praying for me and, and I was praying, chanting for her. And it was just the most amazing moment. And two days later, when I was getting discharged, the young woman who um, was just, she was most, mostly just doing all the cleaning up around the place. She's really lovely, very young, from Peckham. And I live in South London. And, uh, and she's very, very made up. And like a lot of young black girls, she's wearing a wig. 
And she sat down on the bed, and I was waiting for my wife to come, and we had the drugs, and I had no more drains, and it was brilliant. Hematoma from there to there, but no more drains. Um, I was going, no, it's fine. You can send me home with a hematoma. I'll be fine. I'll massage it. I promise. Send me home with a hematoma. Um, they let me go. Um, and she sat down on the bed, and she and I chatted, and, and she was like sort of, I don't know, 18, and she was saying, I want to be a nurse, but I don't have the quality. And we were having this amazing conversation about this, and I'd said about my wife leaving the school with three O levels, and that I didn't come from an academic family, and blah, blah, blah. And we're just talking like this, and then she did this, and she took off her wig. And she has alopecia, and she has no hair at all. And she said she'd never shown anyone at work that before. But my talking to her about my cancer, and my talking to her about my wife, made her feel like she could. And then she put her wig back on. And she went. And the tiny moments, like really small, but they were huge. And I need to say this very carefully, because I really mind the Illness makes us strong, narrative. Because it's made me really scared. And it's made me run like a mad person from my death until I've had the guts to occasionally look at it. And sometimes those moments, the really lovely woman who took my bloods last week at King's and looked at my veins and went, <laughs> I'll do my best. Um, but then was lovely and did her best, was brilliant. And it only took one go, you know, amazing woman. And, and my consultant's face, when he, my surgeon's face, when he told me that I was sick again and, and the young woman and the Somali woman and the countless people with me and them working together mean that I, I know I'm alive. And the thing about death is it's the proof of life, right? We only really know how alive we are because death's there. Two years ago, I took my wife to Iceland. And we went to the Gullfoss waterfall. Has anyone been to the Gullfoss waterfall? Yeah. Right? It's the largest waterfall in Northern Europe. And it's like this. And it was February. And it, was, it has icicles coming down. And underneath there's running water. And it's all clean glacier blue. And there's hardly any sun. And it was three o'clock in the afternoon and the sun had gone high. And it was just setting. And it was phenomenal. And my wife was over there taking photos. And I was here standing on the edge. Well, not the edge, because they don't let you get that close. But like, it felt like I was on the edge of the Gulfoss waterfall. And I'd been having quite a lot of conversations with my cancer therapist, who I now see privately, because I only got eight sessions. And I was so grateful for them, but I needed more. About being in the abyss. The fear place... The sickness place, the cancer again place for me, is the abyss. And the thing about being in the abyss, I looked up the etymology. <laughs> it's not Joseph Campbell's hero's quest. You're not coming out the other side. None of us are. And I stood at the edge of the Gulfoss waterfall, and I thought, that's the abyss. That's it. It's huge. And it's wild. And it's stunning, 
And I felt alive, I promise you, and it only lasted maybe 15 seconds if I'm lucky, but I felt every cell. I really did. I felt every cell. And I think I got that because of this. I'm not sure you can get it otherwise. And the lovely thing about being in the abyss, right, in the end, is we are here by ourselves. It's true. But I see twinkling lights. I see you. I see your twinkling lights. And for those of you who are patienting along with me, and those of you who are cancering along with me, and those of you who are doctoring, nursing, health practitionering, I like the verbs so much more than the nouns. We're so much better than just a noun, aren't we? We're much bigger than just a title. We are here together. Yes, and you, I love that you've been here all day. I love it. Thank you so much.